Being bad with money and why it can't buy you class. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deep into our relationship with money. Money, money, money. Now, money was always a very charged topic in my family growing up, as I'm sure is the case for many of y'all listening. And when faulty beliefs and faulty fears pertaining to money are ingrained in us as kids, this can cause some real fucking damage in adulthood. And that is because money is one of the only things that touches on and impacts each and every one of our needs, and not just our physical needs, but our emotional needs as well. In today's society, financial success is so often tied to our sense of self our self-worth, it can be so easily linked to our emotional needs that we cannot separate the two. We come to believe that money is love, that money is security, that money is attention, and I can definitely relate to this. So today, I'm going to share about the faulty beliefs that were ingrained in me regarding money, and then I have an amazing conversation with writer, producer, podcaster, Ben Rimmelauer. Now, for any of y'all housewife whores out there, you will know Ben as Countess Luann's cabaret director. So I knew that he was sober. I think he said it in an episode of Real Housewives of New York. But a few months back, I heard him on another podcast and he was talking about his primary drug of choice, money, and about his one man show called Bad With Money, which was in 2016, which is a play by play of his unhealthy relationship with money throughout his entire life. You need to check it out. He holds nothing back. It's raw, it's vulnerable, but it's also super funny. So when I hit my adult child bottom, in most respects, my life was much more unmanageable than it had been when I hit my alcoholism bottom. I got sober at 19. My life had essentially been managed for me up until that point. The unmanageability that I could create was rather limited. And my life pretty much stayed managed for me for the first five years of my sobriety. But when I moved out to San Francisco at 25 and I entered the working world, that is when unmanageability began to slowly creep into my world just an inability to adult, which got progressively worse as my adult child and my codependency issues progressed. I think I mentioned it in one of the prior episodes, but one of the ways that the disease of family dysfunction showed up for me was through financial irresponsibility. In the last few years leading up to my adult child bottom, so six to nine years of sobriety, I created a bunch of financial wreckage. And it wasn't reckless in the sense of going on crazy shopping sprees at Neiman's or going on lavish vacations. It was like taking Ubers and Lyfts everywhere when I could have easily walked or taken the bus. Uh, But the real culprit was on food. 
expensive dinners out or takeout when there was definitely plenty of food in the fridge. And that little shit adds up. That little shit festers into big shit. And I had no clue how much money I was actually spending. I would be scared to look at my credit card statements. And I would have this pit in my stomach whenever I would go check my bank account balance, not knowing if it was going to be $2,000 or $2. It was just a way that I created fear and shame in my life. Now, One of the laundry list traits is that we become addicted to excitement. Now, initially, they were going to have that be we became addicted to fear, but they changed it to excitement. But regardless, adult children use fear or excitement to mimic the feeling of being alive when in reality, we are just recreating a scene from our childhood. And it says in the Big Red Book, Gossip, dramatic scenes, pending financial failure, or failing health are often the turmoil the adult children create in their lives to feel connected to reality. While such behavior is rarely stated as such, these behaviors are an addiction to excitement or fear. Because we were raised in chaotic or controlling homes, our internal compass is oriented towards excitement pain, and shame. This inner world can be described as an inside drugstore. The shelves are stocked with bottles of excitement, toxic shame, self-hate, self-doubt, and stress. As odd as it sounds, we can seek out situations so we can experience a hit of one of these inner drugs. And for me, my financial irresponsibility was a way that I created a hit of shame and it worked. (laughs) It caused me immense shame due to the underlying messages that I received about money growing up, one of which being that financial irresponsibility was really, really bad and something to be ashamed about. There's a great book called Mind Over Money, Overcoming the Money Disorders That Threaten Our Financial Health. It's written by two financial psychologists, and the overall message of the book is that Our dysfunctional relationship with money, our disordered relationship with money, has nothing to do with a lack of knowledge or a lack of willpower, but everything to do with these subconscious beliefs and thought patterns rooted in us during childhood about money. This is what shapes our relationship with money going forward. So in order for us to create a healthy relationship with money, we need to unpack the messages that we received about money growing up. So as part of the adult child recovery work that I've done with my therapist and addressing the financial wreckage I created, I have really looked at the messages that I received about money growing up and how this has shown up for me in adulthood. So the main message that I received about money growing up was that it was important, like really, really important and perhaps even more important than my well-being. Now, this wasn't a conscious thought that I had as a kid, but it was definitely a unspoken message that I received. My dad traveled often for work, usually several days a week, and this left me in a very unsafe environment, an unsafe environment that he was fully aware of. And This went on for years. Now, I don't believe that this was a conscious decision by him to leave me in harm's way, 
but more so to do with his own relationship with money, what that represented for him in his own life. And the other message that I received was that money was the ticket to happiness and success, but not so much spending it and more so having it. I think it was in the second episode that I talked about little Andrea sitting on the steps late at night, listening to my parents argue, getting an adrenaline rush. And there were really only two things that my parents ever seemed to fight about. It was either about my mother's drinking or about money. Now, I never got the sense that we were at risk of the electricity being shut off or anything like that. It was very clear to my seven, eight, nine-year-old self that they were fighting about very insignificant amounts of money. My dad was super, super controlling when it came to the finances. Everything was on an extremely precise and tight budget. And my mom was expected to reconcile all of the bank accounts down to the penny every month. And it would be a big ordeal if everything did not reconcile perfectly. And I just have many memories of this as a kid. Huge fights erupting over very insignificant amounts of money, which just goes to show that it's not really about the money. But I remember we took a trip to Australia when I was in the fifth or sixth grade. And I remember we were in this restaurant in Chinatown in Sydney and my dad just losing his shit over this shrimp dish that I wanted to order. I guess it was too expensive, but it's like they'd spent all this money for us to take this trip. And then it was this damn shrimp dish that caused uh, World War III to erupt and uh, spanned over several days over the trip. So the experiences I just described are what we call a financial flashpoint, intense emotional experiences related to money that occur during our childhood. And it is these experiences that shape our relationship with money going forward. Some of these experiences may be more painful or traumatic than others, but we all have them. And identifying these is the first step in healing our relationship with money. We are not going to be able to improve our relationship with money solely trying to change our behavior in the present. Picture an iceberg. Our financial behaviors form the part that we see above the water, while our beliefs, our thoughts, our feelings related to money are below the water and much, much bigger. And once we can resolve the shit under the water... This will have a ripple effect and we will then be able to make positive and long-lasting changes in our behaviors. Money is such a powerful force, whether there's a little or a lot of it. We can be loaded and still have a very unhealthy relationship with money that not only impacts ourselves, but the lives of others, our spouses, our children, our coworkers. Money, or rather what it symbolizes, has caused me a lot of pain. It has had an insidious impact on my entire life. It's been used as a bribe. It's been used as manipulation. It's been used as punishment. And at times, it has made me feel extremely unloved. And this is all the shit that I'm working through with my therapist and slowly healing my relationship with money. So now for my conversation with Ben, and just as a heads up, we spend the first seven or eight minutes talking about Real Housewife-related stuff, so feel free to skip ahead. 
The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Money can't buy your class. Money can't buy your class. Elegance is learn, my friends. Elegance is learn, oh yeah. Money can't buy your class. Money can't buy your class. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce author, producer, theater director, host of the podcast, Broken Records. And if you are a Real Housewives whore like me, you might recognize him from Real Housewives with New Jersey, where he worked with Teresa on her audiobooks, and most prominently with Luann on the cabaret shows, Countess and Friends. Welcome, Ben Rimmelauer. Hi. So happy to do this. Welcome. Happy, happy uh, July to you. And thank you for having me. Yes. Um, so I think you just recently celebrated 10 years of sobriety. That is fucking huge. Congratulations. I did. Thank you fucking very much. And I think you're like me where, you know, these addictions are very much like, it's like whack-a-mole, right? You know, they all, they all just pop up. Probably could qualify for about 15 different uh, 12-step programs. Exactly. So um, just one quick housewife's thing that I did want to talk about. So you're working with Luann on her cabaret show, and this is in her, you know, alcoholic demise. Do you think that it was divinely inspired that you being in recovery, that you ended up being her director? (laughs) Um, Maybe so. Uh, You know, I I don't know. Um, The Lord does work in mysterious ways. She obviously knew that you were sober. Oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And did you guys have any conversation? Like, did she ever talk to you about recovery or ask you any questions? Uh, yeah, we had lots of conversations about it. Um, more so um, after she had um, gone to rehab the first time uh, than before. Um, but but it was something we had talked about. Uh, as about, We laughed about it. One of the first times that we filmed together for Real Housewives. It's the only time I've ever had any alcohol in 10 years was, um, and I certainly don't count it, was uh, we were the first time we filmed together. It was that it's an on the show is when she sang happy birthday to me, even though it was on my birthday. We were sitting up at this rooftop bar and she ordered a vodka soda and I ordered a club soda and they brought us both vodka sodas. And I took a sip and went, whoa, that's vodka. And um, I remember thinking, is this a bad omen? <laughs> that's so funny. I was at a uh, a Yacht Rock concert, a cover band concert. Yacht Rock. Fucking love Yacht Rock. And it was, I was at Nine Years Sober and I picked up the wrong drink and I just spit it all over the place. And I remember my boyfriend at the time was like, he was thinking I was going to turn into the Hulk or something. He's like, are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it was uh, it was just one sip, and I'm such a gulper, you know, when I drink anything that I had just sort of thrown back a big sip. I guess it wasn't that big, but you know, I throw, I just, 
And it was like, whoa. And um, I did have a little bit of a moment of like, what's gonna happen? Is this night gonna end with me like, you know, vomiting and like a gutter on the Lower East Side? Um, but uh, but no, that was not my path. That was not my choice. Did Luann, was she, was she there when that happened? Was she sitting right next to you? Yeah, um, I don't think at the time it seemed like that big of a deal uh, to her, you know, because she was not yet sober. And I don't, um, I don't know. She and I never talked about it. I don't believe that she had considered the fact that she might have a problem at that point. I mean, I suppose maybe she had to because don't we all, but, um, but it was not something we had discussed and it, that didn't seem to be the way that she received the information that I was in recovery. Mm-hmm. What, what are your thoughts on kind of the optics of alcoholism on Roni? Um, you know, it's interesting. It, it's evolving. I mean, I think that there, um, you know, it's an odd thing to think about in terms of any of the Real Housewives uh, franchises, especially Roni, because they all drink so much. You know, there were those stories, I think, was it, uh, was it Heather who had said that the producers really, you know, mm-hmm. pressure them to drink and there was a scandal about that, you know, and uh, I think that, you know, I think this show reflects a very alcohol obsessed uh, culture, especially, you know, in New York City and um, and, a, and a section of that society that the ladies are in that is particularly is, is bent that way. And, you know, it was an odd portrayal of recovery, the way that Luann went into it. Um, and it was because when she seemed to be having a very not serious recovery mm-hmm. that was flip-flopping there seemed to, the way that that was, you know, being sort of characterized on the show was extremely um, open and potentially, you know, legitimizing a sort of false recovery, you know, and, uh, and then, and, and that was really bleeding into a whole portrayal of alcohol abuse among the ladies as something for like sort of conjecture and finger pointing. Well, Dorinda's got a problem. Sonia's got a problem. Well, we're all drunk, you know, and uh, it, it was very sloppy and concerning um, for what the messaging was, I think. And that seems to have really taken a turn in this last season or two. I mean, I, I've been really hardened to see Luann approaching her sobriety now, what seems to be in a very serious way. I mean, uh, I, I had been told that, or I think she had even told me that, that she wasn't drinking. And, you know, I, I make it a point to never get invested in somebody else's sobriety. I mean, that's one of the things about, you know, my Al-Anon recovery that's most, you know, useful for me. And also as an alcoholic myself, I resent other people having a stake in my recovery, which I feel such a personal need to own autonomously. And so I never wanted to play that role with Luann and and I didn't. but I was a little skeptical, I guess, when I had been told and heard that she wasn't drinking, you know, a year ago or whatever. But now with so much time behind her and and just what does seem like, I mean, I was really heartened to see the scene between her and Victoria where they talk, uh, where Victoria was so grateful for Luann's sobriety and Luann seemed so genuine in her, in her valuing of that. And, um, I really liked to see it. And I thought there was just sort of a change in tone. Even the way Luann approached Sonia's drinking, it was less uh, in the mold that it had been in previous seasons. And I I was heartened by that. And it's, it, it seemed like in a way it sort of, you know, who knows where it'll go next, but 
it, it did take the whole last couple of years, the way alcoholism has been characterized on Roni and it, it sort of put a better uh, filter on it that I was happy to see. Did you see the reunion where they closed it? You know how they do the final toast at the end and Luann closed it with the serenity prayer. I don't think I noticed the serenity prayer, but that's hilarious. Um, good for her. <laughs> um, so, you know, I want to talk with you about kind of your, your drug of choice money, but before we get there, can you talk a little bit about your childhood? You know, what are some pivotal moments that you feel like shaped you into the person that you are today? whether good or bad. I feel like Barbara Streisand's concert in 1994 when the fake therapist says, have you ever been in therapy before? And she goes, have I ever been in therapy before? <laughs> um, yes, I can talk a little bit about my childhood. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Um, you know, uh, I think I was always, it's funny, I actually have to qualify at an AA meeting this weekend and I've honestly never done that before. Really? Um, you know, with my drug of choice being money, I focused my recovery after I had done my 99, 90 and 90 in AA, after I got out of rehab, I hardly have gone to AA meetings at all, except the occasional random one when a friend is going and I tag along because I've really focused my recovery work in DA. And in DA, there are very specific requirements. For, if you don't know what DA is, can you explain it? Oh, pardon me, Debtors Anonymous. Great. Um, and uh, in Debtors Anonymous, there are very specific requirements before you can qualify in a meeting, before you can chair a meeting before you can be someone's sponsor. There's all kinds of, DA is very regimented um, uh, because it's not quite as simple as not drinking. Okay. Um, yeah, not debting is a little more loosely defined and it's a lot more proactive in all these steps that you do need to take to recover in DA. And I've never uh, been able to get through much of it. I mean, I'm really the, for, for my 10 years of sobriety in AA, I'm really the um, drunk, you know, reeking of whiskey at the DA meeting, so to speak. And so I've never qualified in the DA meeting and um, therefore, and never in an AA meeting. So I'm doing that this weekend, but it's funny to think about what my, in my childhood led me into this uh, life. And I do feel that it was always in me. I do feel that I was born with an addictive personality. I, um, I really just always wanted more of everything. And that's true to this day. I mean, Moderation is the thing that I most feel unable to, uh, or, or challenged, greatly challenged to achieve. And that was true whether it was, you know, candy or spending money or, you know, uh, anything. And I, um, I, I always fetishized, um, not in a sexual way, but I mean, I think I glamorized uh, the idea of drinking. I do, even though my father is an alcoholic, that was not something that I knew until really after our relationship was terminated. So I didn't associate with that, that with him. I wanted desperately not to be like him, but I didn't really know that he was an alcoholic. I just knew that he was scary. Uh, and I did know that he took drugs and I very much was afraid of drugs. And I think when other friends of mine were starting to smoke weed when I was like 13, 14, I really held out against that and didn't try pot at all until I was like 17 because I had this really scary association with all drugs. And uh, as opposed to alcohol that I found really appealing. I mean, I used to watch the movie Annie and I thought Carol Burnett was so fabulous as Miss Hannigan with her bathtub gin. And I would put on my mother's bathrobe and sort of sachet around the house holding <laughs> a champagne glass with, you know, 
ginger ale um, or, or sometimes tonic water because I wanted one of the soda bottles, not from the fridge, but from the bar. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea that it came from the bar, you know. So as soon as I was in high school, the end of high school, really, and started to be uh, going to parties where there was alcohol, I wanted that buzz. And once I tried pot and sort of realized, oh, drugs are not this scary thing where they're not only this scary thing that my father abused, but they're another way for me to have this cool feeling. And once I was able to, I mean, I remember the first question I asked the first time I smoked weed, it was with my friend Ari, rest in peace, an addict whom we lost at age 27, but he was still alive then. And he was a a major Trekkie. And his pipe that he carried around with him had a Star Trek logo inside the glass casing. And my first question was, what, could I get the Evita logo? And it was like, yeah, maybe, I don't know, just, you know, suck in here. But it was like, I was already wanting to merchandise it. But it's like, I, I felt like I could make this mine. It wasn't my father's drug. I could make it mine, you know? And then, and, uh, and I got right into smoking cigarettes around that time too. I mean, I just, I wanted, and I love the idea, even substances that didn't give me a cool feeling. I've always loved the idea of taking a substance of, and, you know, doing face masks, you know, uh, conditioning treatments. I just love the idea of, of using a product. I mean, even in my sobriety, I'm, I'm really out there. I do all kinds of tinctures and natural essential oils and things. And, and a lot of them, I like the way they feel, but I'm just sort of committed to the idea of being able to, to, to consume things regardless. <laughs> so at what age did uh, your father leave? Or when did your relationship with him end and what were kind of the circumstances related to that? We'd always had a bad relationship. He was a scary figure. He was a raging uh, alcoholic and addict, even though I didn't know that was going on. I knew that his behavior was extremely erratic and he was a, um, well, he was, he's gay and he was not out at the time when I was little, but he he was going out to have a lot of sex with men so he'd be gone at all hours and that sort of flew under the cover of the fact that he's an OBGYN so he'd be out delivering babies at other crazy hours too um but so he would not be home a lot he'd be out in the night doing that then he'd be sleeping that off you know and um when he was awake he seemed to always be in like an unstable state I just picture him with like bags under his eyes and weird acne breakouts and just seeming like, you know, I mean, now I know that he was like hungover and sick from drugs and stuff, you know, but he just seemed like that. And he was like a Jekyll and Hyde character where he'd be so overly warm and overly uh, friendly, but in a way that was off-putting to me, you know, I, I didn't want him to hug me so tight and, and, you know, I wanted him just to be like my mom and just be so stable and present, not this like, you know, these extremes. And then other times he'd be baking or cleaning and getting frustrated and smacking pots, clanging pots and pans and like a Joan Crawford, Mommy Dearest kind of, you know, scouring surfaces with bleach and like, you know, just this very like dramatic energy that was very threatening. So I was always recoiled from him. And then we always had issues because he felt rejected by me because I never wanted it. Even when I was a baby, you know, he couldn't make me stop crying the way my mom or his parents or her parents or my great grandmothers or my aunts and uncles. I mean, I was like a very friendly baby, but I never wanted my father. And that really was consistent through my childhood. And then 
we bonded a little bit because I, my parents would sign me up for soccer and t-ball and I hated sports. And my mom would say, well, you have, you have a commitment to the team. You have to um, finish the season, but I would just dread it so much. And then I would sort of be allowed to skip. My father would drive me to practice, but he would be a softie because he had hated sports too. So he wouldn't force me to go out on the field. He would let me sit in the car and talk with him about it. But he would overshare about how much he had hated sports when he was a child and he was not physically developed and he was a late bloomer and all the other boys had hair under their arms and could masturbate and come and he couldn't and he thought something was wrong with him. And I was like nine. I was like, what are you talking about? None of the boys have hair under their arms. This is not my life experience. I don't want to know about this, you know, but I didn't have the language to say that. I just further recoiled from him and then he would be angry that I was recoiling. And there would be these fights about how, you know, I, I wasn't nice to my father or whatever. And my mom would have to be referee. Then they split up, they got separated. And um, the decision had been not to tell us the reason was my father was coming out of the closet, but my father was not good at keeping secrets and he had no boundaries. And so he did tell me and my sister, but then he told us not to tell my mother. But of course we were little children and we did tell. And so that was just sort of the beginning of this thing of then him being mad at me that I blabbed the secret to my mother even though I was 10 years old and that went on for a year and a half and he was extremely unhappy I think he had thought he was going to be living this charmed fantasy life once he was out of the closet but I didn't know at the time I didn't find out till years later but then he found out that he had HIV and this was 1986 and that was considered an immediate death sentence and so he really went off the deep end with the drugs and he was having very bad financial problems. And he was um, taking all that stress out on me and my sister, especially me, because he thought my sister was very caretaking of him and loving toward him. Even though he was burdening her with a lot, he was being ostensibly kind to her, but he would rail in anger against me. Um, so he had, and, he had partial custody? Yeah, we saw him. Every other weekend, we would spend the weekend with him and we would spend every Wednesday night or maybe it was Thursday night with him. But those were intense times because he would pick us up at school and then we'd sleep over and then he would drop us off at school the next day. And so for the weekends, that would be a Friday pickup at school and a Monday morning drop off at school. I mean, it was a lot of time and he was very unstable and he was still uh, delivering babies and he would have to go out in the middle of the night, but he was so tapped out financially with his drug expenses and um, paying hefty child support to my mother. And what was really killing him was this malpractice insurance that he had to pay as a doctor at the time, which he complained about endlessly. But so in the middle of the night, he would make little beds for me and my sister. He'd wake us up and take us to his office and make beds for us on the waiting room couches. So we would spend half the night at his office unattended in deserted building in the middle of the night. I mean. And um, he wouldn't be there with us. And then my mother found out about that. And that was a big fight, but it was very stressful being with him. And then it all culminated in this uh, trip to San Francisco. Uh, we took a dry, a road trip with him and his boyfriend at the time where my father was really losing it and made several suicide attempts on the trip. And then was all over the place and forbid us to tell my mother about it. But of course I did. And then uh, we were um, in therapy at the time and we were afraid to see him again. But my father was fighting us on that, wanting to force us to see him, but we kept going back to court and the judge would not force us to see him. 
but ultimately my father said that we didn't have to see him anymore if he didn't have to pay child support anymore. My stepfather adopted us. Um, so that, that was the turning point. I was uh, 11 years old. And uh, then my father was out of my life for 10 years, completely. And then in college, I reached out to him and we reconciled. And we had a sort of brief fun honeymoon where I had this like sort of cool gay dad who would like come and be, visit me and my sister in Berkeley and take us all out. And he and I would go to gay bars together and it was like a fun time, but it wound up being very toxic, very fast. And um, we uh, fell out of contact after about a year and a half. And then we haven't spoken uh, really since 1998, although, or 1999, although um, I did run into him seeing Gypsy starring Patti LuPone on Broadway, which is a dramatic, climactic rather, it's a climactic final sequence in my my one-man show, Patti Issues. Um, it's, it's seeing people that see the show, I think, think it's like a dramatic license, like, you know, poetic license to have this like, such an uncanny button on the story but it's actually happened. It was just an insane coincidence. He was sitting right behind me. Wow. Well, I would like to acknowledge that that is a lot, like up till 11 years old. That is yeah. a lot. That's a lot to go through. That is a lot of trauma. Yeah. That's very heavy. Thank you, know? you very much. When you told your mom that your dad was gay, I mean, did she not have suspicions? No, she knew. He didn't want to tell yeah. her that he had told us oh, because they had agreed that, because, you know, I mean, we were very little. I was nine and my sister was uh, six. Mm -hmm. And it was 1985. It wasn't like now. I mean, nobody knew what gay was. I, I literally didn't know what that meant. I mean, it was, um, it was not a thing. I, I guess I had sort of at that point, my sister didn't know at all. I had started to hear about it because Rock Hudson was dying of AIDS. And so that was something that was, you know, we would tell a joke at school. What do you call Rock Hudson on um, roller skates? Rollades. But I, you know, we, but like when we would play the game Smear the Queer, you'd throw a ball in the air and whoever got hit by it was the queer and then everybody chased them. That there was no in, uh, in, implication that that person was homosexual. That was just not, you know, calling somebody gay was the same as calling them lame. Or, yeah, or exactly, exactly. And um, it, was, it was really not something that was known. I mean, I think now people that, even in small towns maybe where there's not like a liberal bent, you know, maybe the, there's a sense of like, the gays are gonna get you, gays go to hell, God hates fags. But it wasn't like that in 1985, it was just invisible. Mm -hmm. There was just not a sense that it existed. So it was, they, they had, for better or for worse, they had decided not to tell us, but my father didn't, you know, for the time being. Um, but my father didn't want to adhere to that, which is maybe understandable, but he shouldn't have done it without telling my mother that he was gonna tell us. And he certainly shouldn't have forbid us to tell my mother. You know, it was, I mean, but, you know, he had no qualms about burdening us with secrets. I mean, it's so funny because, like, literally, like, a year later, there were all these vid videos about child sexual abuse, smart kids, safe kids, starring Henry Winkler, you know, where they'd be like, if an adult tells you a secret, you don't have to keep it. Some secrets are fun, like birthday parties, but some secrets are a burden. Do you know what a burden is? And if I had seen those videos, I would have known right away that like I didn't have to keep this secret. But but I did. That was all like a little bit later, you know. But uh, yeah. But my so my but my mother, uh, you know, she was wonderful actually about that. I mean, my mother made many mistakes over the years for sure. But but she was um, 
trying to take care of her kids. And she wanted to support us and help us know that there was nothing wrong with our father being gay. And it wasn't nice of him to tell us we had to keep a secret, but she didn't want us to think that she wasn't supportive of that. And she was sad that their marriage didn't work out, but she was happy that he was able to be his true self. And, you know, that she and my father had also outed my mother's brother who was mm-hmm. gay to us because he would, didn't want to stand alone as being gay. He had to be part of, you know, so typical of him, but you know, that she, my mother wanted to assure us that she loved her brother very much. And, you know, there was nothing wrong with being gay and all that was great. So when your relationship at 11 was cut off with your dad, I know you mentioned that you were in therapy, but after that happened, was it all just kind of brushed under the rug? Like, let's just move on with life. Or did you continue to go through therapy or what happened at that point? Uh, I did continue to go through therapy, but it was kind of brushed under the rug to some extent. You know, I sometimes question now my parents, my mom and my stepdad's decision for me and my sister to be adopted and more specifically to change our names, our last names. And uh, we immediately started calling our stepfather dad. And, uh, you know, in a way it put a false pressure on that relationship because then I forever had to look at my relationship with my stepfather as why is this not everything that my relationship with my father should be? Mm. And it forever has felt unsatisfying and um, insufficient. And I think that we would have allowed it to be the relationship that it was, which was my stepfather. I think that I would have had an easier time being in a good place with him all these years instead of having to struggle a lot. But my mom happened to be pregnant at the time with my brother, who would then technically be my half brother. But I mean, one of the nice things about the um, adoption and everything was that, you know, he never felt like my half brother, you know, to this day, he feels like my whole brother. And And there was something very appealing, I think, to all of us of just being a family that was united and very, you know, it was the 80s. I certainly had no shortage of friends who had, what do you call it? We didn't say broken families even anymore. Divorce was so common already in the 1980s. I think, you know, maybe we said split families or whatever we called it. It was so common, but I, in a way, I was like pretending not to be one of them, you know? And um, there was there was something that was appealing and had rewards to to that, but it also I think was a bit of a gaslighting that was done to me and that I was taught to do to myself. And it's I think it's something that I'm really only kind of working through now, despite having been in therapy those years. So I just watched your your one man show, Bad with Money. I didn't realize that you could buy it on iTunes. I would have just done that instead of asking you to. That's just the audio book. Okay. Okay. Well, everyone should listen. You wanted to see my beautiful face. I sure did. You had to use my private, my private link. But, (laughs) uh, but I, you know, it's interesting because I did put last year, well, I know I've had during the pandemic, I put Patty issues in its entirety on YouTube so that people can enjoy it, um, you know, for free. I, I didn't rush to put bad with money um and now I wonder like I noticed my inclination was to keep it private when I put it there for you but maybe I will make it public it was very powerful I really yeah I had a visceral reaction watching it before we kind of get into your issues with money what I wanted to ask you because this is something that I've dived in with my therapist what what were the messages about money that you received whether spoken or unspoken growing up um they were bad ones they were very bad. My uh, father, obviously, 
or not obviously, but as a matter of point, his message was that there was never enough and that he was working so hard and somehow never got what he deserved and that we couldn't have what we needed and that whatever we had wasn't enough and that he dreamt of having big Mercedes's and mansions in the hills and fabulous things. And he so celebrated material things and longed for them and couldn't acquire enough to be happy. And that it was a real tragedy. Mm -hmm. And I think I bought into that hook, line and sinker. And the message from my mother was that those things don't matter and a little bit of shaming for wanting those things. Mm. But it was a mixed message because my mother wanted them in her own way. She's not as sort of like across the board materialistic in the way that my father is, especially not in the sort of superficial fashion-y way. But my mother does have a lot of materialistic things that do mean a lot to her. And there was, it was sort of hypocritical the way that she, I think, raised me to be ashamed of myself for wanting materialistic things while at the other, through, out, out the other side of her mouth, wanted them too, some of them, you know, the ones that she thought were okay. Also, uh, something I'm learning about my mom and my stepdad is that they were pretty bad with money. And they are retired now and they've retired very comfortably. And I'm so grateful for how well off my parents are. And um, I know they struggled my whole childhood and it's really nice to see them so comfortable and enjoying their retirement so much. But there was sort of a message to me that it was about how responsible and cautious they were and that it was really a bad character trait and such a problem. And I, I was so unique and such a black sheep in how I am with money. And they haven't really wavered much from that message, even though as I talk to my, my siblings are much better with money than I am, much, much better. And uh, they both, I think, partly maybe due to that, have been able to have a lot more frank conversations with my parents and have seen my parents in a lot more realistic light. And they, they basically think that my parents, while they did work very hard, were extremely bad with money and sort of got lucky in the end and were able to retire okay. And every time that some little piece of that comes out in a story that my brother or sister tell me, or my dad, my stepdad, uh, a little bit, although my mom really never has represented that to me, it makes me cry. It's like tears of relief. It's like, I feel like, oh, I'm not some like horrible black sheep. I'm not like, this is human. And in fact, it's even in my own family and I'm not the like pox on the name, you know, and it, it's amazing how much shame I carried for that. And I think that it's, it's really good for me to be able to see the, the truth about that or the nuance to that anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It reminds me a lot with toxic shame. So toxic shame is, you know, when shame is internalized and, and it can go one of either way, like we can do shameless acting in where we do everything that we can to avoid shame or we can do shameful acting out where we just act in ways that just create more and more shame. And, you know, I think that with your story with money and your relationship with money, that's, you know, what it was, it's just shame on top of shame on top of shame. 
totally. And I think you're, I really bought into it. You know, I, I think that because I was gaslighting myself or to, the, you know, for the being gaslit really and uh, gaslighted. And um, I, I needed to make my concept of my family perfect. Mm-hmm. So why did I feel so bad so much of the time if my family was perfect? Mm-hmm. I had to make myself a bad guy so that I could explain feeling bad. And I think I did a lot of acting out and continue to in a way so that if I'm always at fault, I don't have to face the actual defects in my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it just goes to show how whether it's alcohol, drugs, money, it's all just a symptom of the problem, right? You know, people like yeah. to think, oh, it's alcohol and the drugs that's the problem. It's not, it's just, a, it's the totally. solu- attempted solution to the problem. Yes. Yes, yes. One of the best of the um, recovery uh, catchphrases for sure. So, you know, I remember when I started working with my therapist kind of on my codependency issues and she, I remember her telling me, she's like in the recovery field, it's like alcohol, drugs, that's the easy shit, right? She's like, it's the relationship stuff. We have to have relationships. Like that's a lot harder. And I think the same goes with money, right? We have to spend money. It's not something that we can just abstain from. And so it's a much more challenging recovery process. So I don't know if there's a particular story that you want to tell, but I guess what would, yeah, what would highlight, what would be a nice little example of, I guess, the, the shame and pain and the insanity of your relationship with money? God, um, I mean, really so many, it's like, I don't even know where to start. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think it, it's, it's certainly one of the more universal aspects of it nowadays. And it, it's so uh, central to mine is the idea of credit cards and credit. When I got to college freshman year, I was a, uh, it was the uh, fall of 1994. And immediately the first day of welcome week, walking onto campus, there were probably, you know, a dozen tables of MasterCard, Visa, Discover, American Express, giving away free t-shirts and sippy bottles and all kinds of things if you sign up for a credit card. And boom, the next week, you get in the mail a credit card with a $900 or $1,000 limit. And I was already predisposed from a lifetime of mismanaging any money or any resources that I had uh, access to, including when I had been probably 15, my parents, uh, I guess I'd always had a savings account, but when I was 15, my parents arranged for me to have a checking account. And I immediately started bouncing checks. And it, my account was at my parents' bank where they did their business and they knew all the people and they would get phone calls. And they, at first it was sort of like, okay, this is not how you need to do this. Let us teach you. But immediately it became clear that I wasn't getting it or I wasn't listening. And so immediately there was a shame and there wasn't really a, um, I don't know, I'm having a hard time remembering, to be honest. I, I don't know whether that was checks were taken away from me or I was just so scared of my parents being mad at me that I stopped abusing it. I don't remember which it was, but somehow I got through the next, the last two years of high school. And then I got to college and immediately started bouncing checks again. 
And here was a way to not have to bounce checks. Here was a way to have this credit. And so I maxed out all those credit cards and I had money. I had gone to college. My parents were giving me an allowance and I still had, and I had my bar mitzvah money that was finally made available to me because um, now I was a quote unquote adult at 18. And so I paid off my credit card bills and I got my limit raised and I maxed them out again because I was doing everything I'd wanted. Finally, I could do all the shit I wanted. I could go out to dinner all the time. I could buy clothes. I could buy CDs. I mean, I think my CD collection, which was I was carefully collecting, you know, not just the Reality Bites soundtrack and Toad the Wet Sprocket album like my other friends, but I needed to have every Broadway musical of the last 50 years and every album by Barbara Streisand, Bette Midler, Liza Minnelli, as they were, you know, Betty Buckley and Patti Lapone and Bernadette Peters were just starting to release their solo albums as, you know, Broadway singers coming of age and I needed to have them, you know, and so my CD collection in high school was probably up to, I don't know, like 60, you know, in the first semester of freshman year, it probably shot up to 500. And, you know, that was all on credit cards. And um, I just wanted stuff and I felt so entitled to it. I felt like I needed it, you know, and I wanted to be able to buy an eighth of weed every week. And I wanted to be able to get drinks and go out and I didn't, you know, my parents were very generous with me. I was really quite spoiled. They were paying for my college and giving me an allowance to live on. And um, I had a food cart in the dorms, but it was just not nearly enough for what I wanted. And so I maxed out all these cards and ran through all my money. And then I was home for winter break and my parents found out about it because I guess the, some of the addresses on the credit cards matched my ID. So they'd seen the statements or however it happened and they paid it off for me. But I went back uh, second semester and did it all over again. And then they wouldn't pay it off for me. And pretty soon I started to have a horrible credit and I was not even yet 19 years old. And that became this thing that, I mean, in a way bad credit kept me out of trouble because I never got the $20,000 limits that many people got. So I wasn't able to quite descend into that kind of debt. Although I've certainly gone into other debts that would rival that. But I, um, but I knew that I had bad credit and that was such a sense of something I identified with. And it's become such a part of who I think I am to this day that a lot of things that people don't do because it might go on your credit, that's not a bumper for me because I already have bad credit. That's the difference. And um, I continued to bounce checks and spent many periods of time with overdrawn checking accounts or were times where I had such a bad uh, record with the banks that I couldn't get a checking account at all. And it's just really been like this crippling thing for me, uh, how I've existed financially in society, like sort of partly off the grid almost. And um, it really stems from that. Does, I don't know. Does, does that answer the question in any way? Perfect. And so I, would you say that your drinking and drug use increased as a, I'm sure that you use that as a way to avoid, you know, some of these feelings related to your debt? Yeah, eventually. But I think that my drinking and drug use got to full speed initially out of a desire to party and escape more than a sort of fighting off the anxiety. I think I, I, I think that I had so much shame and self-hate 
already before any of the deadings really got started that I didn't feel the effects of all that stress because I was already feeling like shit. So I was making the outside match the inside. And I think that um, for years, I just kept getting in more and more trouble because I already felt like crap, so it didn't matter. So the drinking and drugs weren't necessarily to combat that. They were on their own for their own reasons. And ultimately when I was in my thirties and I was real, real sick and tired of living this life uh, in terms of the money problems, I think that the drinking in particular was a way to combat that stress. But that, but that took a while for me to be at that dynamic. I think it's hilarious when you talk about in Bad With Money about how you ultimately, you know, went to rehab for a month more so just to, you know, get escape from paying bills and, you know, just so get away from that. It's hilarious. It really sounded like a vacation. And I mean, to this day, I wish that there were some kind of rehab for money. Did you stay sober after that? Is that when you got yeah. sober? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was in, that was June 11th. Well, June 11th, 2011 is when I woke up and stopped drinking and taking drugs. And I started rehab June 22nd. So what has it been like to go through your challenges with money being sober? Um, it has been better. It has been, uh, my experience has been better. I don't know that I've done much better, but I have, I mean, I, I don't know. It, it's hard to quantify, but I guess I would have to say that if I was at a 97 in terms of my financial problems before I got sober, Maybe over the years, I've gotten down to like an 81. And that's happened very incrementally and with sometimes three steps forward, two steps back. Um, but uh, I think it took being sober for me to do even that. And it's taken me being sober to even be able to see that and be able to appreciate that and lean into that. Um, so much, I think of what I've gotten from Al-Anon in particular has been this idea of easy does it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm really trying to shore up my confidence in the wisdom that a slow recovery is a good recovery. Mm -hmm. And that um, this is not about me forcing myself shaming myself into doing better. Mm. This is about me embracing a more self-caring way of life. And I can do it in the tiniest, tiniest bites that feel authentic to me one day at a time, you know? And it's, I, I, it was, in a way it was easy for me, or I really was blessed getting sober because my personality is very black and white in a lot of ways. And once I sort of redefined myself as a sober person, it's been relatively easy for me to just stay within those boundaries. Um, and when I learned that, and it's what I was struggling with when I wrote Bad With Money, I was like, how the fuck am I gonna take money one day at a time? Because I really saw that as something that was like discipline, that was like waking up earlier, being on a diet or going to the gym. And that may be true. And maybe if I could embrace that, I would be better off. 
but I'm learning about myself that that's not how I roll and that I have to embrace myself for who I am and give myself space to, to enact the gentle recovery with money that I was lucky enough to find in Al-Anon. And it's what, it's what I love so much about Al-Anon because I see that the only recovery in Al-Anon is the gentle one. There's not even any pretense of a harsh recovery. The whole point of Al-Anon is that it's people who have been harsh on themselves, learning to be caring to themselves. And so really sort of uh, transposing that philosophy into my money recovery is what I'm hoping to do as my life evolves. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and it's it's not about the money, right? <laughs> so hard for me to know that. I mean, I hear that and I recognize intellectually it's true, but I get so attached to the money, to the things, you know? It's part of the addiction that I'll just think, but if I don't get this extra Sono speaker for my bathroom, my life will be incomplete. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's ridiculous. I'm obviously trying to work through some emotional thing by prioritizing this speaker over my, you know, getting dental work that I need. How can I possibly think that? But it's like, I really get attached to it. And then the reverse will be true in terms of the recovery aspect. I just get obsessed with the money instead of with the self care. I think it's a form of resistance in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Kind of like what they say, you know, and, and you made a comment about this in bad with money, but when we say when it relates to drinking that one is too many and a thousand never enough, I mean, you made that comment, like, even if you had a million dollars, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you would still up the ante, you know, you'd still overspend. It's so horrifying because like, I don't know, I've said that publicly and how will I ever get a rich husband to support me if he sees that show? Because <laughs> I will spend all his money. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. What, what impact, you know, you're very, very, very honest, very vulnerable. Yeah. What impact did that have on you? How has that impacted your recovery? Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, that was a really complicated thing in my life. Um, a lot of people felt that what I was doing was um, counter to recovery. Someone in my life even felt that it was like um, uh, really anti-recovery and, and that I was somehow a fraud by, by even talking about recovery in the context of that. Um, something that meant a lot to me during the run of that with money is that a man that I really respect, I was, he wasn't my sponsor, but he had been like a step work coach for me in Debtors Anonymous. And he's someone just in DA that I had connected with and that I really, really admired, uh, came to the show. And, uh, this is a middle-aged heterosexual man. He's a filmmaker, not a musical theater type person. And, you know, not, I, I respected him so much but he wasn't necessarily someone I'd be friends with in real life, although he is an artist um, and, uh, and a debtor, and, and a, but a real recovery role model. And he came to the show and he said that it was the best fourth step share he'd ever heard. And that meant so much to me because it, it, I felt really uh, validated in what I was trying to do. And ultimately now, it's funny because I finally feel after a year and a half in Al-Anon and the stuff that you and I have been just talking about, I finally feel that I am in a different place than I was when I wrote Bad With Money. Um, but I still feel proud of how it expressed where I was in that moment. 
And I still can really relate to so much of it. And um, I think probably at the time I had high hopes for how, no, that's not true. I was going to say that I had high hopes for what the act of doing the show was going to do for my recovery. And that that isn't the case. I really didn't. Um, I think that a lot of people thought that I did. And I got tired of denying that to the point where I maybe started to believe it, but it really wasn't the truth. The truth is that I was trying to um, express myself because I had that story burning inside me and I didn't know how to write something else if I didn't write that first. And um, so, you know, that, that was really the bottom line. Uh, I do feel a little distance from it now, which is a good feeling. Well, I think it's great because it's just like that my, me doing this podcast, you know, I felt so much less shame when it came to the alcohol and the drugs, but like the relationship stuff. And at nine years sober, finding myself in a relationship with somebody that I'm pulling them out of a bar at 11 in the morning, like I felt so much shame about that, you know, and I just feel like we don't talk about it as much. And so that's why I wanted to create this podcast to just lay it all out there and to do it in a vulnerable and raw way, but also in, you know, a little bit of a comedic way. And I feel like you don't hear that many people talking about, you know, their struggles with money in the vulnerable way that you do. So I just thought it was so fucking powerful. And I think that more people, this is a big problem, right? Like, I think that this is something that's not talked about enough. Thank you. That means a lot to me. I mean, I feel that way too. It's funny you say that about the relationship issues, because that's one area where I don't feel shame. I mean, I think uh, I was blessed enough to be able to just feel genuine, um, I don't know, empathy for myself in that struggle and, and nothing but like a loving desire to, to heal. And, and, I, I, and I, I think, you know, and, and it's like, the, it's in a way Al-Anon and AA are the two sort of um, poles of my recovery because in AA I felt a genuine desire not to drink, but little desire to work the program. And in Al-Anon I feel just such a compassionate desire to, to work through it. And, um, and then I have all the shame really caught up in, in the DA. Uh, but I thought it was important to, to face the shame because I did feel like it was, it was important for me to say it out loud. And I had a lot of people that I respect who felt that it was something that was worth being said out loud. And, and to whatever degree the show was a raw expression of where I am or was in my recovery, uh, that there was something commendable about honestly expressing that and inviting people to hear that. And, um, and I trusted them and I, and I don't regret that I've done that. So if somebody was, uh, somebody struggling with money issues, where do they start? Jesus Christ. Um, well, they should go to a debtors anonymous meeting, you know, and they should read some of the literature. You know, I, I know that for me, I, particularly insidious spending addiction. And so I, I know how to keep myself in vagueness so that I can continue debting, mm-hmm. but I always really do know the balances on accounts. Mm-hmm. I really do know how all those systems work. It's not a matter of me. So the tools of DA don't feel that novel to me because I um, have constantly been trying to outsmart the system so that I could get an extra $100 available balance that day and then debt it, you know? 
Um, but I think a lot of people do come into the program and they really do, the tools are actually what make the difference for them, that just getting clarity on their spending and their debting and their, uh, you know, their expenses and, and what they need can really turn it around. And so there really are a lot of proactive tools in Debtors Anonymous that, uh, well, first of all, they're necessary. I mean, even for someone like me who doesn't find them to be the game changer that they need to be, I don't think I can recover without them. But I think that there's a lot of people who will get an automatic uh, surge of recovery just by working those aspects of it. Um, but there's just a lot of practical aspects to DA that I think people will be really helped by. And then of course, you know, like any uh, recovery program, just being in the meetings and hearing people's stories and relating to other people. And uh, I think that th it's just a really important thing and people don't necessarily know about it. Mm -hmm. And then do you want to talk a little bit about your podcast? Sure. Uh, well, my podcast is Ben Rimmelauer's Broken Records and um, people can find it everywhere that podcasts are. And it's produced by Broadway World and the Broadway Podcast Network. Um, and uh, we have a companion piece to it, which is called Next Year, Some Year. It's a video live stream chat show, uh, which is every uh, Tuesday at noon Eastern time, but it's also available on Broadway World's Facebook and on Broadway Podcast Network's uh, YouTube page, uh, you know, even after the fact. And my co-host, Daniel Nolan and I um, do, uh, we have a lot of different Broadway obsessions that we're working through in different ways. Uh, the beginning of the podcast, Broken Records, was about talking to Broadway stars and other theater talent and theater adjacent talent like Michael Musto and people like that about a particular album that was influential to them. But then we started doing these things called corn streams during the pandemic, which Daniel and I really enjoyed where we would just, the two of us would just watch some theater or theater adjacent video that the, uh, that the fans can also stream. And we would uh, sort of deconstruct it, breaking it down. And, um, you know, right now we're doing this thing that we've been having a blast with, which is this mini series uh, called Roses and Daffodils, like the lyric from Everything's Coming Up Roses. And it started where we were creating a Spotify playlist of different renditions of the songs from Gypsy, mm -hmm. from the different Gypsy cast recordings on Spotify, whether it was Patti LuPone or Bernadette Peters or Bette Midler or Apple Merman and um, Daly, Melda Staunton. We had so much, we would do it, at, we had a poll every week on our social media of which versions of each song the fans preferred. Uh -huh. And we would discuss it on the live stream. And then we did the podcast episode where Daniel and I reconciled the fan polling totals with each of our opinions, ultimately to create the playlist. And then the one that we're in the middle of right now is Follies, which is a very wide ranging score. So we, it took weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks to get through all of it. And we're gonna record the podcast finally this week but we're definitely going to keep doing more of those because they have been a blast. Um, and it's fun to just have a little bit of everything on those. So I don't think anyone will accuse us of um, being bitchy and playing favorites because we <laughs> are reconciling everybody's opinions together with our own. And there's something democratic in these playlists that take a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B, you know. Oh, that sounds awesome. And I'm all for the bitchiness, so. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. My pleasure. It's a joy to talk to you. 
Money rich and manners poor Never got the boys too far Money talks but I just walk when I can't stand it And the primary Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you out. Please check out the show notes for ways to contact Ben, as well as to several resources related to this particular topic. You can also find links to my social media there. I am on TikTok and Instagram at adultchildpod. And please give me a fucking five-star rating on Apple. I would really appreciate it. It really helps me reach more listeners. We're going to skip Hit a Girl Up today because this was a rather long episode. But if you have questions, comments, insights, hit a girl up, see ways to contact me in the show notes. And I will see you mofos next week for a great episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I am super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. <laughs>